I love meeting Americans. They love meeting Israelis, and they have all sorts of great questions like uh, about the army. Have you been in the army? And it's funny because we all been in the army because it's mandatory. You have to be in the army, 18 to 21. This is what you do. Why you Americans? Oh my God, 18 to 21. This is the time you explore your sexuality. You explore all kinds of sex in different ways. We masturbate in a tent with 10 other guys. This is what we do for three years. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer. Joined this week by tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. I think we're alone now. There doesn't seem to be Stephanie Butnick around. Can I just tell you, I met Edith Isadora for the first time this weekend in one of those remote walkthroughs in the park in the neighborhood. She is legitimately the world's most, I know, I know you know, I have some babies, you have some babies. She's yep. the world's most adorable child. She's this like baby gorgeous. puts our collective babies, our kinderlach to shame. I have not met her yet, but I, I completely believe it. Our listeners are, are gaga over, over Edith Isadora. A lot of mail about congratulations to Stephanie and Ben. Welcome, Edith Isadora. But we, we're mostly just feeling we miss having Stephanie with us. So we felt we had to do something extra special to make the show even listenable in the absence of podcast co-founder Stephanie Butnick. And so what Liel and I cooked up this week, a little something about Israeli-American relations. And I want I want to put a finer point on that. Here's this country. It's been around since 1948. American Jews are obsessed with it. Sometimes they're obsessed with hating it. Many more obsessed with loving it. We visit it a lot. We give free trips to our teenage and college kids who want to go there. There are people who want to die there. There are people who want to retire there. It is is so central to the American Jewish psyche, world Jewish psyche, but we're going to talk about the American Jewish psyche. And then there's this ironic thing. It's baffled me a little bit, especially since in the years really since we started doing this podcast, when this issue has become so central, which is that the number of Israelis who moved to America is skyrocketing. And it's it's over a million now. Isn't that right, Liel? Reports vary. You, you know, Jews and their numbers and how they love right. to disagree on nothing more. But you know, the official number is 800,000. I hear reports that, you know, a million is not exaggerated. Right. And in my own neighborhood, I mean, Israeli families everywhere. And, you know, the joke being like, you know, when did you move here for two years? You know, they're 20 years in. Oh, when did you move here for two years? Because they come and often they stay, but they maintain the strong Israeli identity. And this has become unbeknownst to many Jews who don't live in cities with large Israeli populations, it has become a really serious and interesting issue how many Israelis live here and then become Israeli Americans, have Israeli American children, and what that means for diaspora relations. It's a whole feature of diaspora life and Israeli American life that has crept up on us really in the last few years in particular that we've actually never talked about. So for this special episode, first of all, Liel and I are going to throw down. I'm going to ask him some tough questions and maybe he'll come back at me with some tough questions. And then we're going to have two guests who speak to this question of Israeli-American relations. And Liel did both of those interviews. My man, Liel Benzion Yehoshua Leibowitz. Shlomo. Shlomo. Chaim Jonathan Leibowitz. Yeah. Nehemia Jonathan Leibowitz. Whom did you interview for this episode? As you said, two of the finest, two of our best. First of all, Israel's premier, and I dare say only because Israelis, it will shock you to hear, are not really yet that interested in thinking about Jews worldwide. They're very likely to see themselves as the only Jews who really matter. But there is one, there is one righteous man in the country. His name is Tzvika Klein. He is an incredible journalist who works with the Macaulay Show newspaper. He's also a podcaster. And his entire beat is Israel-Jewish diaspora relationship in the course of which he interviewed literally 
every communal leader on all ends of every ocean, everywhere. He's also an American-born guy who moved to Israel as a child, so really sees, you know, every conceivable aspect of this issue. So wait, he's an Israeli journalist whose beat is American Jewry. Whose beat is world Jewry, but his obsession being American-born is, is American Jewry, and really someone who's thought and reported about this widely and deeply. So in a country where actually you're also narcissistic and self-obsessed that you yes, don't even bother to think about American mm-hmm. Jews. This one guy. This is the guy who's mm-hmm. sitting there in Netanya or Tel Aviv or wherever thinking about American Jewry. Jerusalem and and yes, the, this is the guy. Got it. Okay. This is literally the only guy. By the way, he posted, on, this is a, to tell you how much this is the guy, he posted, I think on either Facebook or Twitter this morning, he was walking uh, down the corridor in the Knesset the Israeli parliament, where they're currently debating the new budget. They're trying to have a budget, which if it passes, will suggest that the new Bennett government is actually going to survive and not lead to, to a fifth election. And as soon as people from the government saw him, they sort of like grabbed and said, Zvika, you'll be so excited to know that there's a lot in the budget for you know relations with American Jews. <laughs> Like he's literally the one dude who they know cares about this stuff. Right. He's the dude. All right. And who else? One other interview this week, right? One other amazing human. One of my absolute all-time great favorites. His name is Guri Alfi. He's probably the greatest Israeli stand-up comic. I can't even compare him to anyone here because there's so many great American stand-up comics. He's Richard Pryor, mashed up with Lenny Bruce, mashed up with Eddie Murphy, mashed up with Jerry Seinfeld, mashed up. Took a lot of heroin and uh, set himself on fire. No, he's... He's this really, really, really kind of smart stand-up talk show host, actor, comedian. He's really great. And about a year ago, one of his friends said, you know what you should do a show on? And he said, hey, what? And the friend said, yeah, I think American Jews, which is about the same of being here. Like, you know what you should do a show on? Um, Maybe like 14th century boudoirs in Eastern France, like Dagestani weaving. The one topic guaranteed to get precisely 0% rating. And Gouria's is like, are you insane? <laughs> Nobody cares. And the friend said, no, 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 you know, there's a there, there, come and, and, and you'll see. And so Gouria traveled here to New York and created this show. I mean, to his credit, understood right away the rich potential of the subject and created a show in which called The New Jew, which is literally the first time Israeli television has dealt seriously with, you know, trying to understand American Jewry. And he just goes around the country and he meets different people in the community. And his reactions are both hilarious and completely heartfelt and very thought-provoking. We'll talk to him. And then we have the privilege of listening into a clip from the show. Well, that sounds amazing. And I can't wait to hear those interviews. But before we get to those interviews, I would like to take advantage of the fact that I happen to co-host a podcast with an Israeli who moved to America, one Leah Leibowitz, and ask some questions of you that I have about Israel and its relationship to the United States. Is, is that okay? May I, may I proceed? I am sitting back. I will style all of my answers in a form of a question, like, like in Jeopardy. You are sitting back. You've donned your corduroy kippah, and you are ready to engage with your Rav. So, Liel, you grew up near Tel Aviv, correct? Correct. Herzliya represent. What did the United States mean to you? Because you've just gotten done telling us that Israelis don't give a fig about America. Oh, no, 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 my friend. About American Jews, we ah. don't care a, a whit. About America, we're completely obsessed. How obsessed, you ask? I'll, I'll tell you one quick story, which I think I shared in the show. The most exciting moment growing up for me was Shavua America or America Week 
in the local supermarket, which for one month, because <laughs> America Week is four weeks long. It's it's America time, right? It's Eastern Standard Time. So for one month, the local supermarket, which I think was like the Supersal, had all kinds of rare treats previously unheard of on our shores, including peanut butter, which mm. was a very, very big deal. And fluff, marshmallow fluff. So for one month, you could go shopping and pretend like you too lived in suburban New Jersey. It was the highlight of the year. It's like a hog for us. Pretend that you too could eat sandwiches that Tim and Joanne Oppenheimer would never have let their children consume. Well, well of course, your own sandwiches. Uh, understanding the irony in retrospect, but like incredibly intricate, like turkey with hummus and pickles and tomatoes right, and sandwich. fresh fruit and that vegetables. And <laughs> it was like, mom, why can I too have the highly processed food that tastes like pure sugar? Our own sandwiches were hummus on pita bread and you're over there eating marshmallow fluff. That's right. But did you partake of the idea that American Jews were somehow inferior or unactualized Jews? Not that nine-year-olds spend a lot of time thinking about these questions, but what was your sense of American Jews? I had no sense. I did not think of American Jews. They literally didn't exist for me. My other favorite American Jews prior to really understanding America's story is I was, I think, in junior year of high school, maybe senior year of high school, and I went into the little library. We had actually a pretty good library in my high school. And I said, I, I want to read books. This may sound stupid. I'd done the Russians. I'd done the French. I'd done the English. I said, you know, I want to read books by Jewish authors. And they said, no problem. You know, we have Bialik. We have Agnon. We have all these great Israeli writers. I said, no, no, look, I've read all the Israelis. Do you have any other Jewish writers? I said, oh, yeah, no, sure. We have like Anne Frank. You mean stuff like that? And I said, <laughs> no, anything else? And I said, and the librarian, who's this very thoughtful woman, said, no, I'm sorry. That's all we have. And then I was sort of, you know, browsing around and I picked up. The one book they had by this author who had a funny name, Soul Bellow, it was Henderson the Rain King. And I, I brought it over to her and I said, who's this? She looked at the book and then she looked back at me and, and her look was saying to me without words, like, don't, don't waste your time with this, with this garbage kit. You know, if you want to read Jews, read Israelis. If you want to read great literature, read, you know, Tolstoy. But what is this Nourishkeit Bellow? And I took the book home and I read it and it blew my mind. And I started thinking to myself, well, you know, what is it about this culture, which is at once so clearly Jewish and yet so like nothing else I've ever seen. And that started a, uh, a lifelong obsession with, with this here community of which I'm so proud to be a member now. So when did you hatch the idea that you'd move here? I don't know when I hatched that idea. I'll tell you that when I was a little bit older, I came here as a, as a delegate of the Israeli scouts. Right, a scouting delegate to Tennessee or something, right? A scouting delegate in Tennessee and Arkansas uh, oh and loved every second of it. And then started meeting people who, I won't say too much about it because Guri Alfie says it way better and way funnier. But at one and the same time, you know, my first instinct was to mock them because, well, first of all, because I'm Israeli and that's always our first instinct. Second of all, they were not Jews in any way that I understood to be Jewish. But then I also started noticing like, hey, hold on, like, actually, they're super passionate about being Jewish. And also they know shit that I don't begin to know, like, you know, the intricacies of blessings and rituals and ceremonies. These are not, you know, hoppers. How were you, what was the religiosity of your household? How were you raised? I'm a scion of this great big rabbinic dynasty, and I was raised with, you know, some observance, but, you know, not enough to say no Havdalah by heart or actually be able to regale you with stories from the Gemara. And so I met these people, and the most fascinating thing about them was that they actually had to sort of choose to be Jews. And it wasn't obvious. For me, 
if Friday afternoon came along at around 3 p.m., right, the entire country shut down. There's nothing that you need to do. You're Jewish by osmosis. You just open the window and you breathe in a lot of Jew. For these people, Friday afternoon comes along. It feels exactly like Wednesday. You have to choose to get off the couch, stop with the TV, go to shul, do something actively. And as soon as I realized that, I was, I was completely smitten with this idea. And look, this is, this is the greatest cliche. And I, I know so many Israelis say it, but I left Tel Aviv an Israeli and it was New York that made me a Jew. But I think we skipped over something there, which is you came over here on a scouting mission to, uh, to hang out with Boy Scouts in Tennessee and Arkansas and learn knots together, whatever Scouts do. Scouting was not part of my Jewish American tradition. I, I could hear. But then you moved here five, six years later. Why? Why did you move here? Look, I came because both Israel and myself at that exact point in time, which is 1999, were both busy being born or reborn. You know, Israel was still a pretty small country. It was still years away from all these, you know, upheavals that we see right now, including high tech, you know, high tech, high def television shows, high ranking international achievements in anything from the Olympics to the global economy. I had just finished my army and my bachelor's degree and thought to myself, as I understand it now, quite foolishly and and provincially, that the great good was elsewhere. It wasn't in my own tired, dusty, sun-baked backyard. It was in America. And I figured I would try. I would come here. I was, you know, awash with fantasies of two martini lunches with book editors and parties thrown by the New Yorker magazine and, and things of that nature. Of course, the irony is coming here and then achieving some version of this dream, I realized just how narrow-minded I was and just how more profoundly amazing my homeland was all along. When you came here and then in the next 10 years, during which time you married, and that brings us right up to the point when you were about to have children who are American-born, what about America was everything you hoped it would be? And what was disappointing? What, what were the letdowns? I won't speak of America uh, because it is such a, a, a huge and intricate and gorgeous and complicated mosaic. But I will speak about, about American Jews, about American Jewish life. The thing that really kind of struck me the most, and, and I, I can't stop thinking about it because this is not anything I had in my bingo card, is, is exactly this notion. It's exactly the notion that if I wanted to preserve any sense of being Jewish, I had to stop being Jewish and I had to start doing Jewish. And when I got that inclination, what blew my mind is how many different paths, how many alternatives, how many well-intentioned and hardworking and creative and dedicated individuals and organizations there were here to help me do just that. And that just made me both incredibly frustrated because that meant that the onus was now on me <laughs> to choose mm -hmm. a path that worked, but also incredibly grateful because I think that is the side that most Israelis don't see of the American Jewish community, which is how really into being Jewish people are here. Look, I went to Jewish Heritage Night at the Brooklyn Cyclones game yesterday, and there were like 19 different varieties of Jewish communal life represented there. And each deeply, deeply invested in paying a, a steep price in, in dollars and in time and in emotional investment. It just is, I can't tell you how wonderful it is for me. And, and, and again, how different it is from the much more uniform monolithic model of life in Israel. In that term, it was just a huge growth process, not just communally, but also personally. I mean, again, it made me Jewish. It made me start keeping kosher, davening and keeping mitzvot. 
that I don't think would have happened to me if I stayed in Israel. And, and I can't tell you how happy I am that it happened to me. But of course, your experience is unusual for a Jew living in America, whether American born or not. A far, far more Jews take the, the even more welcoming path of doing less Judaism because there's no osmosis. And as you said, Wednesday afternoon feels just like Friday afternoon here. And part of the hope for some Zionists, depending on their flavor of Zionism, of, of the Zionist homeland, the Jewish homeland, was that people could be Jewish without doing as much. So, I mean, do you, you know, if, if you were raising your children in Israel, they would be getting Jewishness by osmosis. And here, to be perfectly blunt, a lot of people feel, would say you're taking a chance, right? Because it's so easy to off-ramp into uh, the religion of national public radio and tech consulting or whatever. I don't know, man. I think I think in a weird way, you know, Judaism, as, as it always does, has the last laugh. And it turns out that the joke's on all of us. I mean, here, for example, are all these Israelis who thought precisely as you just said that didn't really need to do anything. And they just kind of, you know, opened up the window on, on or stepped out on the balcony on Friday afternoon and all this great big Jewishness just, inhaled the smell right. of Shabbat and of, just of like, Cholent and, and challah and that's it. And yet at the same time, here you see an entire nation with very few exceptions, you know, undergoing this incredible Judaization process. You know, this is Israel is now a country where like there are hit TV shows about Haredi Jews and where the like one of the number one songs on the radio is Seder Avodah, literally depicting by, by the way, Haredi singer, Ishai Rivo, but a song about depicting the order of things that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest in the ancient temple had to do on Yom Kippur. This is astonishing. So, so while we thought that we were sort of done with Judaism and we're now fully Israelis, Judaism behind our backs was still wrestling with us. And I could say the same thing about American Jews. I think for a certain generation of American Jews, and I've written about this and received some angry letters, mainly boomers, Judaism was largely a, like an escrow account, right? You you sort of, you know, parked your kids in, in some uh, Hebrew school and, and sort of hoped for the best while focusing all of your resources and your attention about your daughter getting into Princeton or your son getting that, you know, Lehman Brothers job. And I think that's no longer true for most people, mainly people our age right now who really understand that it is again incumbent upon them to reinvent what Jewish life in America looks like. And, and here the figure, if you will, of Israeli Americans becomes so interesting to me because you're, you're exactly right. You know, 15 years ago, Israeli Americans like, hey, we came here for two years. It's been 22 years. And uh, what we do is we watch the soccer and we eat the hummus and we only talk to other Israelis. Like they may as well have stayed in Petah Tikva, but, you know, they happen to live in Florida. Right. I think that changed. I think, you know, now you have something like the IAC, the Israeli American. American coalition, which is amazing. I think more and more and more Israeli Americans, and I'm, I see myself very much in that light, understand that it's actually kind of incumbent upon us to, to really serve as sort of like living human bridges between these two communities, because there is still so much ignorance, mainly on the Israeli side, but also on the American Jewish side. Definitely There's on still, the American side as well. There's yeah. still a lot of animosity, again, mainly on the Israeli side, but also on the, on the American side. There's still a lot of issues and conversations to be had. We're in a perfect position to do that. Uh, and and here we are doing this in this here special episode. So I, I definitely want to get back to that Israeli-American identity with my last final questions. But before we do, I want to, I want to return to a question that I had for myself when I was last in Israel, which was, I, I remember being in Tel Aviv. The question is, why is everyone shouting at me? <laughs> the question actually was, why does everyone here look exactly like they're from hipster Williamsburg? You know, I was I was staying in one of those districts <laughs> where you wake up in the morning and you go, you, you know, you walk out and you go to the coffee bar 
and the barista serving you has the nose ring and then the sleeves of tattoos. And then the music is yeah, American or Israeli or Israeli, but sounds American or kind of pan European continental, whatever. And then people are skating by with little dogs running alongside them, right? You know, they're on the skateboard with their dog running to catch up. And the young people are are canoodling, as the gossip rags used to say. And I just felt like, this is amazing. This is exactly the neighborhood I want to live in, except I understand I could never afford to live here. On the other hand, nobody needed a Jewish country for this. And in fact, nothing about it felt particularly Jewish. Right. And outside of those two zip codes. <laughs> well, but Tel Aviv is a big freaking city and there's a lot of secular Israelis left. I mean, it's not as if the religious revival has swept the whole country, but more to my point, right? Part of Herzl's dream was, and, and the theory behind a lot of Zionism was, I think most Zionists in fact would agree on, on this point, was that there was going to be something intrinsically Jewish about the culture that Jews built, even if they weren't religious Jews. And by the way, I loved, I had just been in Jerusalem for several days and I loved Jerusalem. And I felt like, isn't this amazing that there's this country where the Jews who want to do Jewish ritual, Jewish practice, Jewish religious observance can do it in relative safety, understanding, of course, that the country is in a state of perpetual war. But ironically, right, that, that there's also this very safe and supportive space for Judaism to flourish. And that was great. It, I understood the argument for it, whether I felt it in my bones or agreed with it, I don't know, but I understood why you'd want a country for that. But a lot of the Zionist project was to have a country for people to be secular, but to have a Jewish neshama. And that felt to me totally bogus. And I guess I wonder, like, does what I'm hearing from you is you might kind of agree with me that there's not much point in secular Tel Aviv being a B plus version or maybe an A plus version of secular Brooklyn, if, if that's what the country's for. I agree wholeheartedly. And I also disagree vehemently that this is what Tel Aviv is. I, I don't like the word secular, A, because I don't like any divisive labels, truly. But B, because I actually don't think it applies to to anything and anyone in Israel. Uh, you know, my, my favorite example of this is there's a kind of a big ceremony every year in the kind of few hours between Memorial Day and Independence Day, right? Which happened symbolically day after day. And in this moment, they play a sort of iconic song. It's a song that is meant to convey and embody exactly what you said, the essence of Zionism, the self-sufficient, non-religious, kind of, you know, non-God-dependent heroics of the people who fought and died for this land. And the words of the song are, Nes lo karalanu, lo matzanu. No miracle happened to us. We did not find a little jug of oil. Even when they were trying to be hardcore secular atheists, these guys searched and could find no other symbolism than the Hanukkah story. This to me is, is the embodiment of everything. The things that Tel Aviv so vehemently rejects are in of itself an invitation to a conversation with the values that secretly it continues to inhabit, which is why some of the greatest Kabbalah Shabbat that you will ever have in your life are on the Namal in Tel Aviv with hundreds of quote-unquote secular Tel Avivis overlooking the, the Mediterranean at sunset and doing it their way. And to me, you know, that you could kind of waffle around in the cafe in the morning and then go right over and do something like that together with a hundred people and not even call yourself religious. That to me is a vindication of the entire project. Okay. So with that behind us, you know, the note we have to end on is, okay, I'm sold. So why, aside from the fact that, you know, you're married with American-raised children, why are you here? Am I not in Israel? Like, why are you not in Israel? And why the one point whatever million other 
Israeli Americans who were born in Israel and then have come here or are the children of Israelis but have Israeli citizenship. As you've pointed out to me in the past, it's a, it's a very motley mixture with all kinds of ties to Israel. But people who have an Israeli identity but live in the United States, why are they all here aside from economic opportunity? I can answer this question in, in so many ways, but I'm going to try two or three. Let me start with the with a sort of brutally honest, raw one, which is, I don't know. Uh, nor can I look you in the eye and tell you that we would necessarily stay here. Uh, you know, Lisa and I talk very seriously about the option of, of making Aliyah, or in my case, returning. Lisa herself made Aliyah earlier in her life and, you know, continues to love Israel very much. I think it's deeply feasible that we will find ourselves at some point in the not-so-distant future back home. That is my my most honest answer. Now there are all kinds of, you know, variations on, on this theme. The first variation on this theme, again, keeping with the tune of honesty, is that, you know, I came here like so many others, not so much out of a sense of economic opportunity, but really out of, I can't be sufficiently, you know, harsh on myself because I think I deserve it. Out of a sense of huge provincialism, uh, which I think a lot of Israelis share, thinking like, oh, Israel is just a more stupid place. America is where everything good is. You know, it took a very long time to sort of disabuse myself of this notion. But but what I discovered here, and, and this is to answer a different question you didn't ask, but which is implied by the question that you did, which isn't why are you not going back, but it's rather why are you staying here? I'm staying here because I found a community here that I absolutely love. I'm staying here because I find energy here that I admire and that has moved me to grow uh, so much, you know, emotionally and, and spiritually. I'm staying here because there's never really been one Jewish center of life for very long in the very long history of the Jews. There have always been different nodes. In fact, this is what has kept us very, very strong. And I'm staying here uh, because I think that there is a tremendous value now that Jewish life is basically, perhaps for the first time in history, or at the very least, the first time since, you know, Babylon and Jerusalem, a dialogue between two real power centers, you know, one in America and, and one in Israel. I'm staying here because I think the answer isn't to say, okay, well, let's all concentrate in one spot. I'm staying here because I still deeply love and believe in America. And I think that people like me, Israeli Americans, the people we're going to talk about some in, in the course of this episode, are actually vital to, to keeping this project not only alive, but robust. So there's a role for the diaspora. I think there is a tremendous role for the diaspora. I'm not at all one of those who says, uh, only, only be Jewish in uh, Israel. Leo Leibowitz, I, I want to stop there. And I'm, I'm mindful of two things. One is that there are a lot of questions that we're going to get from people who agree with you, as well as naysayers. I'm thinking of people who are going to ask why we didn't talk about Palestinians, why we didn't talk about Israelis who move here only for economic reasons or to get out of army service or because they hate the government or all the other reasons, right? About the, and the internal divisions that I'm sure exist within the Israeli-American community. There are no internal divisions between Israelis, Mark. What's wrong with you? None whatsoever. But I'm also mindful of the fact that I said you were going to ask me some questions and actually I don't think we have time for that. And I think that this was really interesting. And look, we have a few months to fill before we are graced with the return of our essential co-host, Stephanie Butnick. And I think we should take one of those episodes and you can interview me about, I don't even know what? I don't know what we would do with me because um, we could talk about the move down Interstate 91 from Springfield to New Haven. Uh, exactly. About Connecticut and Western Massachusetts. <laughs> it's been, uh, you know, we will play a lot of uh, Fountains of Wayne and James Taylor, two of the great troubadours of the Pioneer Valley and Western Mass more generally. But I think for our discussion of Israeli-American relations, we should stop there, except to say that we have two terrific guests that people should, uh, should stay tuned for right after this.
Our first guest is Tzvika Klein. He is a journalist for the Israeli newspaper Makori Shon. He's a podcaster, a TV personality. He's also Israel and, dare I say, the world's leading Israel diaspora relations correspondent and writer and analyst. He's American-born and he made Aliyah as a child and is really someone who sees all sides of this fascinated, multifaceted debate. Here is my conversation with my friend Tzvika Klein. Tzvika, I am delighted to sit here in my living room face-to-face after not seeing you for too long as not just Israel's, but really the world's premier reporter on the relationship between Israel and the Jewish diaspora. I want to tell you a story I hear from both Israelis and American Jews, and, and I need you to tell me how true or untrue it is. You talk to Israelis about the state of this relationship between themselves and American Jews, and they say, we're heading for divorce. American Jews, you know, they're assimilating at top speed. 70-something percent of them marry non-Jews. They don't care about us. Then you speak to American Jews and they say, oh, us and the Israelis, we're heading for a divorce. You know, Israelis are increasingly more sort of nationalistic, chauvinistic, religious. They don't care about religious pluralism. They really don't make any effort to get to know us. What is the one thing, and could be more than one, that each side gets deadly wrong? about the other side. Israeli Jews don't understand almost anything about American Jews. (laughs) For instance, the secular Israeli will see a Reformed Jew and think they're the same thing, but they're not. Because a Reformed Jew, that is, let's say a Reformed Jew who is very, very Reformed, who is very active in his his or her community, sees him or herself as a religious person. They pray. They're looking for spirituality. They have a religious leader that they listen to. And this Israeli secular person does not. Um, And you always see that when Israelis come to America or other places and and suddenly they're like, wait, I'm not going to the synagogue because uh, they forced me to go. Um, They don't understand the pure Zionism that's in lots of American Jews. Like the pure, just like love for Israel. I could tell you that the Yom what I enjoyed most was when I was on a, a shlichut. I was a Bnei Akiva and Jewish agency emissary in South Florida after my army service. When I was seeing these families in amazing community who were super Zionist with no buts. And in Israel, Yom Ha'atzmaut, you know, Yom Ha'atzmaut is not like, it's not like this idealistic day. No. They definitely don't get progressive Judaism. Like they don't understand it. They think everyone's like reform and reform is a negative term, even if you're like not orthodox. What about the other side? What do American Jews not get about Israelis? I mean, serving in the army, it's like the melting pot. Like people go through it and they're like, there's something about it that kind of like prepares you to be an Israeli, right? Forget about like what you're doing in the army service, right? It doesn't really matter. Like when I see someone who made Aliyah and they were in the army or not in the army, it's two different people who are having two different experiences in the country. I think they don't understand the Israeli political system, definitely not the issue of religion and state. They don't understand the settlements, obviously. So they don't understand why people would be mad at them for what they're saying about the conflict because they haven't lived through what we've been living through, you know? Sitting on a bus when I was in high school in Yerushalayim and I was 16, and I was always checking to see if the Arab going on the bus had a bomb. Right? That, that was our lives. I want to get a little more personal, but but before we do, one final big systemic Wait, question. and then we're going to have fun? And then we're going to have fun. Oh, okay. Suppose the new government, or any government for that matter, said, you know what? 
no one knows this this material better than you. You're the new minister for Jewish brotherly and sisterly love. You're, <laughs> you're the new, you know, Jewish. Pope. We have a diaspora minister. I know, but but let's assume you, oh, you got you got a position even love. even more mightier, you know, okay. mightier than that. Given unlimited, really unlimited budget, unlimited support, and asked to come up with you know one or two or three concrete policies or concrete things that need to happen right now. Mm-hmm. In order to bridge all these gaps that that you note are still very real and existent, where do you start? We need as many physical meetings as possible. Do we need like a reverse birthright? Do we need to bring Israeli Jews to America to get to know here? It's important to understand what it's like to feel as a minority, to be a Jew in the diaspora. You have to put so much emphasis and sometimes money into it. Right. It's a big deal. <laughs> it it's is. a it's a big deal. I mean, Israel. It's like in the air, you know. Actually, I, I worked for a certain point with like President Rivlin's office and I had this crazy idea. It was like, let's take Jews from Israel and from America and put them in a third country. And we joined with this other organization and we sent them to Rwanda. Uganda would have been a, a historic I know, correct, I know. course correction. Right. Because to put it in a place where, because Israelis, are like we're going to tell them because we know. And Americans like, we're going to tell them because we know. But like, there is truth on both sides. So that was like a pilot. Nothing else happened of it. But, you know, if I had money, I would do something like that. I would uh, bribe, not really bribe, but I would put money into the Israeli media and make sure that every single media outlet would have some sort of function that would constantly report on it. Because like if if we gave money to every single broadcast, whatever, to, to have it, you know, Israeli money, not, not American money. It would create more of a sense of, of knowledge and understanding each other because, and by the way, we should do the same thing in the opposite. Like barely any Jewish outlet has an Israeli reporter and they used to. JTA doesn't really have a full-time guy in Israel. The Jerusalem Post doesn't have like a full-time diaspora correspondent. Like he does something, he's a really good friend of mine and a neighbor, but he does other stuff too. We need it to happen. And it will happen only, I think, with money, unfortunately. So American Jews also have to get more real Israeli stuff. Like occasionally, like with the culture, I feel like Americans are like following, you know, the shtisel and whatever. It's always about the shtisel, right? That's like a fauda and whatever. So I think that could definitely make a change. So let's not talk about Jews in general. Let's talk about one Jew. Let's talk about you. Um, Born where? Chicago. Oh, actually, Evanston Hospital. Born in Evanston, Illinois. Yeah. Moved to Israel as a young boy. Two and a half. Yeah. Uh, and and then sort of maintained somewhat of a presence across both cultures. Right? Your parents are American. I'm like a fourth generation American, born in America. So we have no Holocaust. All four grandparents were born in America. You have milkshakes and fries. Exactly. And, That's and what I'm saying. Like we have. Yeah. Like we're not. We're not European. What was growing up like? Was it discernible to you that you are a little bit different? from other kids? So I think it's something that many kids who are immigrants feel. I grew up in, so we lived in a yeshuv called Karnei Shamron, neighborhood called Ginot Shamron, which is like, we had lots of Anglos who made Aliyah together in 1985. So it it was funny because like, we went to Ulpan Gan. It was like a special thingy after Gan to learn, you know, Hebrews. I still remember Sara Lasha Etabatzik. We had to do it with our hands. So we had to (laughs) take the dough in our hands and make something. And my cousin who was born in Israel, but everyone was speaking English. So she came to the Ulpan. She had to learn Hebrew, you know, like it was, but at a certain point, you want to make sure you don't have an accent. You want to be like everyone else and you try and, and be as Israeli as possible. You don't say slicha aval efo No, no, no it's, I realize it's slachli. 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 That's what my, my, my father, <laughs> yeah. 
then I heard someone else do it and he also had an accent. Right. I was like, oh, right, it's Slachli. Plus, what... here's a word that no one knows Israeli would ever say. Excuse me? Like, no. What, right. What's, what's oh, that? I didn't think about that. Yeah. And, and I would, I ran away from my, from my American Jewish heritage. I don't know what the word is. Like, you know, like I didn't even think it was a heritage because like it's American. It's not like, you know, I'm a Moroccan Jew, right? Like I've got like hundreds or thousands of years, whatever of like, of no, it's like, you know. I'm from Chicago. It started two weeks ago, sort of, historically. Yeah, you know. And I grew up in a settlement, which was amazing, actually. Like it was, you know, we had a house and we went to our friend's house without our parents having to take us. And it was, you know, it was good. Was there a point of return for you? Was there a point in which you stumble across a soul bellow book like oh my god jews in chicago this is the most amazing kind of cultural heritage what what did you kind of discover your american jewish roots no so a little bit at a certain point in elementary school sometime i wrote about the city of chicago and then my grandmother would fax things to me about the city and then i actually started learning about like jews moving there and i think like at a certain point, it was like the second largest Jewish community. But that was just a little bit. It bursted out when I went after the army. So I was like 23. It's amazing because I came back from one year in South Florida and people in the street would assume I'm American. Because like before that, I would wear like those t-shirts with like the torn kind of, right. right? With like the print on for like the army from Nekiva, right. this and that. Like it was like part so of the, like, you know, the sandals. Yeah. And I came back, I was wearing a Gap shirt and like you know those like khaki pants and like uh you know timberland shoes you know what i'll do you one better i don't even think it has to do with the dress it's not it's like it's inside yeah one of my most traumatic dramatic evocative experiences i went back to israel after living here for about four years i went into a cafe and the the waitress instinctively handed me a menu in english in english it, same thing I was like, same I thing i grew up across the same street from thing. here yeah. what's going on and I, I haven't even spoken i didn't even, and now i have an accent when i speak hebrew i have an american accent really it kills yeah yeah so you come here to florida and all of a sudden what is it that you see what what is there one thing is there one well, i told of- you I felt like I would want to be a neighbor to all these people in the community. Like, I what wanted- was it about them that, like, other than okay, yeah, they're Zionists in a way that in Israel people don't usually, you know, speak I just and loved it. Out loud, I mean, they all of- had, you know, they had nice houses. I loved the fact that they would have like these Shabbat meals with like three, four families together, and the kids were just all, you know, together. And the synagogue was amazing. There was like Daf Yomi Shir. Like, you could choose like any type of like, adult education, kid. Ed- the one thing that I said was like the game changer was the school. The specific school that I was like involved in, I'm not going to mention any names. I was just like, this is a terrible school with not amazing teachers or management. And I felt that maybe that's to answer one of your bigger questions. We grew up like as idealistic and not materialistic. Again, there's, you know, there's different levels, but in general, it was, it was about, we're like establishing, you know, a state, even though it was like years later and we're, no, we're, that's 100% we're building, yeah. like we would have these like debates and discussions and politics and this and that. And then I was like with kids, you know, who were like teenagers, it was just like very shallow. Yeah. One of the first Shabbatot and like there was a few kids sitting there and like, somehow I started talking, I don't know how, I don't know. I got to like something deep with them about like the Holocaust and this and that. And, I did, and the mother was like, wow, you know, I wish my kids grew up in Israel. And we're like you guys, like we were a few, a few guys, whatever. And I thought to myself, I was like, you know, I came thinking everyone's going to make Aliyah, right? And then I said, okay, you know, my parents made Aliyah and this is who I am today. 
that's going to be my subtext. Right. You point to something very interesting that you actually wrote about for Tablet a few years back, which is the notion that so many Israelis really only connect to Judaism when they come here, right? Because if you're a quote-unquote secular Israeli, you don't go to shul. You don't learn anything except for the, the little Torah and Tanakh that, that you study in school. Because you're forced to. Because you're forced to, but you don't really right. connect into it. Tell me more about this. Is, is there a model here? Is there is there some way that you think? Because personally, I, I yeah, can you, You're an example, no? Oh, um, a million percent. I don't think I would have ever become what I am right now. Which is what? Which is which is someone who davens three times a day and 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 spends some hours every day studying Gemara and and you know lives like a, a, a spiritual religious does does spirit, yeah. does his best to uh to to work full time for Hashem right every day. If it wasn't for my exposure to this Why not? Because as you said, in Israel, you just open the window and you breathe it in, right? I mean, right. It's, oh, you want to live a Jewish life? All that needs to happen is for Friday afternoon to arrive right. and literally the whole country changes around you and you feel this Shabbat atmosphere. You don't feel like you need to go to shul. You don't feel like you need to Someone do... Someone was just telling me about this like philanthropist. I forgot. I don't even remember his name. And he was like totally like an American Jew, totally disconnected, like no background. He's like, I don't understand what this country's about. Like I... All the stores are closed. There's no public transportation. It's like, I don't get it. It was Shabbos. Mm -hmm. But he didn't, like, he didn't realize. Mm -hmm. And like, that was when he made his like, that was his like, aha moment. So it's a mixture of things. And it drives me crazy that like, I do these speaking engagements and I show a video. I have all these videos I show. And most of the time it's about American Jews or diaspora Jews. And there's this video I show about this singer, Michelle Citrin, who is a reform Jewish female singer here in New York. And she's got this like amazing personality and she's like Jewy that like you and I know what Jewy is, but I don't know. I, I don't know how I would say that in Hebrew because like everything about her is, is just Jewish and she, and she goes to the reform synagogue and her, her partner is there um, who is a female reform rabbi wearing a talis and a, she learns in a, chavru, a chavruta with a Chabad rabbi. Okay. It's like a four minute move, a video. And I've done it enough times. I know like what types of answers I'm going to get. And then there's the secular Israelis that say, wow, I wish I had that. And I say, but you do. Like, if you want, there are reformed synagogues in Israel. And there are ways for you to live in that type of religious way in Israel if you want to. But yeah, why would you? Right, exactly. It's just like it, it's being forced upon right. me. Or maybe it's religion and state and they feel like, okay, that could be one thing. I don't think it's just that. I mean, the people who, you know, established the state some of them who were secular and came from Europe and wanted, you know, they just like ran away from all sure, but it's tradition. Really, I, think, I think it's all, it's it's really, it may be as simple as you get so much of it by osmosis, you know, just by walking down the street on Shabbat. But that's, that, that's bullshit. It's, it's like, it's... You don't believe in that? I do, but it's how much, there's a certain point until it's like breathing like the last breath of, of air. Like, so you won't assimilate because you're living in Israel. But take this guy or girl out of Israel, and it's it, you know it's yeah. a it's a fish out outside of the water, and they don't know how to live a, a life in the diaspora, right. and that's why ninety percent of children of Israelis who move to America intermarry and have no connection to Judaism. You know a lot more than American Jews because they don't know how to how to do it. And there's this thing where the secular emissaries of the Jewish agency who go out, they all think it's like they're the first ones that went through this, and they say. I went on Shlichut, I was an Israeli and I came back a Jew. And I tell them, I was like, but why can't 
you so you you went through it. So why can't you try and, and, and just right. do something with do this in Israel now? <laughs> right, whatever. Make us choose. Right. I don't know. It's frustrating. I feel so. Leave us on a hopeful note. Tell our listeners, most of whom are American Jews, of one thing. I listen though, and we're very grateful. Exactly. But, but you're still technically an American. I have, I have a passport a that just expired. Yeah. Give us one thing that we should know about a singer, a writer, a book, a project, something that would fill us with hope. Okay, so it's not like a book or a singer or a writer. So I'll be a politician and I'll say what I want to say. Right. Hallelujah. There is so much going on in the quote-unquote Jewish peoplehood ecosystem is a word that people like using now in Israel. There's so much going on and it's been going on, I would say for like five years or four years. It's amazing. Whether government initiatives, there are government initiatives to promote like these reverse birthrights. Well, there are reverse birthrights mainly for opinion leaders, but also for educators that come to see Jewish communities mainly in the U.S., but there are Jews outside of the U.S. So South Africa, UK, all the youth movements in Israel today, not only Zionists, like even the Haredi youth movements, there's this initiative where every one of them has a full-time, their role is to create content about Jews outside of Israel. During COVID, there was a group of Israelis who were former emissaries or made Aliyah from Italy. And Italy was like suffering bad because that was the first country that really got it um, in the Western world, at least. And they raised like, close to a million shekel for this community that was like literally falling apart and people were in poverty. So things are happening, like things are happening and it's, it's all, it's grassroots. You know, there are also government things coming, you know, from up to down. Um, that was just a, a few examples. There are many more, like there, a group of educators I met that were on these delegations who were like, we read every single article you write. We have these WhatsApp groups we send it amongst ourselves. We meet every few weeks. We discuss how we can teach our students more about Jewish communities. I feel it's, 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 it's a small and slow like revolution, but things are happening. Things are happening. It used to be, it still is. We hear about diaspora Jews when it comes to anti-Semitism and Aliyah. Israelis are sure that all the French Jews made Aliyah. They didn't. There's still close to half a million Jews in France, but they hear about them on the media when they're making Aliyah because we like to feel Zionistic and proud. And we think that America's falling apart, the Jewish communities, because there's anti-Semitism, right? So. And here we are, an American who moved to Israel, an Israeli who moved to America, making dialogue happen. Svika Klein, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Liel. This was fun. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. 
Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox. First of all, lots of love for Stephanie Butnick, Ben Cohen, and their newborn daughter, Edith Isadora Cohen. Here's one of those letters. Hello, Unorthodox. What fantastic news. Please pass on our congratulations to Stephanie and Ben on the birth of baby Edith. We don't always manage to listen to each week's episode because we welcomed our own little one to the world this February, Samuel David Hazy. We might be biased, but we think he's pretty fantastic. And they attached a picture, and, and he is. As one set of first-time parents to another, Stephanie and Ben, we wish you all the very best and hope you enjoy this terrifying and amazing time. It's a cliche, but it really does go by fast. Oh, and one more thing. If you don't have one, we really recommend the Nose Freda, the Swedish device for sucking out your baby's snot. It's disgusting, but it works. All the best, Hana and Amit Hazi. Now, I met Hannah and Amit at Limud in England a few years ago. Wonderful people. I posed for a, a photo with them. I treasure the photo. I'm glad they're friends of the podcast. I wish them only the best with their new son. That said, we bought a nose Freda or Frida, and we couldn't bring ourselves to use it because it's simply too disgusting to suck your baby's snot out that way. Too disgustingly awesome, you mean? It's like the best thing we owned. Did you use it? Oh, I love nothing more. Are you kidding me? A snot tube? It just has me written all over it. Josh Cross is giving us the, the, big, the big thumbs up. In my mind, it emerges. I think it ended up in the same bin as the neti pot, which is the thing that you use to inhale steam into your nasal passages to loosen your own snot. And I really, I never made head or tail of either of them. And Liel, are you a neti pot guy? I am not a neti pot guy, but I'm a huge Nosferatu guy. Oh my God, snots and sucking and the sound that it makes, you know, that kind of like gurgly, <laughs> bubbly. Oh, it's <laughs> wonderful. I should be clear. I'm not grossed out by my children's effluvia. I just couldn't figure out how to use it. The baby squirmed. It just ultimately seemed like you have to take care of your own snot. I just got to say, I, I don't know. Knock me off my pedestal as dad of the week. Okay. Back to the mailbox. Loved your Elul episode. 
a listener writes, and especially Mark's shout out to one of our girls in Australia, Jess Fox. Jess is truly a poster girl for the Sydney Jewish community. In the past, she's visited local schools and shuls, inspiring all those around her with her dedication to her sport, slalom canoe or canoe slalom, and also her all around incredible attitude, intelligence, and general awesomeness. <laughs> I can't the stop whole... laughing when you say slalom canoe. I'm sorry. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> Liel. Respect, please. The whole community was cheering for her Tokyo campaign from home. Jess's achievements in Tokyo provided all of us with a much-needed lift and a huge dose of Sydney Jewish communal pride. As we say in Australia, she's a dead-set legend. With love from a wintry, cold, but sunny Sydney, Carmel. Carmel, look, I'm with you there. And the fact that I think that with a little training, I too could be a gold medalist in canoe slalom or slalom canoe does not detract from the fact that Jess Fox actually did the work, as did her dad and her mom and her aunt. She is canoe slalom or slalom canoe royalty, and we love her. And she's the Jew of every week. And I want to visit Australia. First of all, Amen Sela. Second of all, do you know that there was a survey this week asking Americans if they think that they too with a little bit of training could become <laughs> Olympians? What percent of us oh. deluded, couch potato, disgusting, slob, lazy bum nation Look, do you think this said, is the country, yes, we can? This is the country where Michael Jordan thought he could be a professional golfer. I mean, well, our hubris knows... Those no bets. 85% of us no. thought that with enough training, we could be Olympians. 40%. Look, Michael Jordan, <laughs> the world's greatest athlete of all time, thought, yes, I'm the world's greatest athlete. Maybe I could be great in another thing. This is a very long, you know, step from, from like me and you. Yeah, I, I could eat like, you know, I don't know, Pringles better than most people. But Wait, you could be a gold medalist in Pringle eating? Is that what you're saying? Exactly right. No one could pop them faster than I can. By the way, while we're, while we're on this topic, I was reminded at Kiddush, at Shul, that I stole one of our bits last week because although I've had this thought myself, and as you've just made clear, 40% of Americans or more have had this thought, most recently, the thought had been planted in my mind that Americans think that we can all train for something and be gold medalist by my pal, Elon Weinstock, at Shabbat dinner at his house. So credit where it's due. Now, Elon, of course, actually, I think is probably a rock star athlete and plausibly could win the modern pentathlon. I, on the other hand, could do no better than the bronze in slalom canoe. So fair enough. I completely take your point, Liel. And while we're on this subject, a huge shout out to Israel's Lino Yashram, who won the gold medal in some form of gymnastics that I'm not even going to bother looking up. I believe it's rhythmic gymnastics. Becoming the first ever non-Russian to win this gold. The first ever non-Russian? I believe it's the case. Wow. I believe a Russian woman has won this Every year, with the exception of the 1984 Olympics, which they boycotted, I think it's been Russians, you know, it's Russians all the way down, except for her. So now, of course, the Russians are furious and saying that the Jews stole oh, their medal. Well, obviously, it was a Zionist conspiracy. <laughs> it had to have been. Like, first the media, then the Federal Reserve, then rhythmic gymnastics. Okay, best letter of the week. Here we go. Dear Unorthodox, honestly, it's the banter between Mark, Stephanie, and Liel for which I regularly tune in. But sometimes... I hang on for the rest of the episode. Like episode 283, where there was much talk of Tamil representation, and never have I ever been groundbreaking in this regard. This, of course, is the show on which Jaron Lewison is one of the co-stars. He was our Jew of the Week a few weeks back. Our listener continues, this is true on some level. I suppose you could call this groundbreaking. However, I would contend that being Tamil on Never Have I Ever is a convenient springboard for launching into a more familiar trope. At its core, NHIE is a rebel story. Ain't nothing more American than a rebel story. Americans love this, especially if the rebel comes from an insular immigrant community and is rebelling against traditions and cultural values associated with this community. The end is almost always the same, the liberal acculturation and assimilation of the rebel immigrant. My other big problem with NHIE is the depiction of one of the most beautiful languages known to mankind, Tamil. 
cringeworthy doesn't begin to describe it, more like blasphemous. I did not hear one honest-to-goodness depiction of Tomalee in either the spoken language itself or in the damned accents in their English. The parts where the characters spoke Tamil were by far the most jarring pieces of audio I have ever heard on Netflix. I will end my rant here. Sincerely, your most ardent Tamil Gentile listener. Well, ardent Tamil Gentile listener, what I want you to do is call our listener line, 914-570-4869, and give us some real Tamil. Yes, let us hear that beautiful language. To squelch out, to steamroll over the fake bogus Tamil given to us by these actors against whom you rant at great length. And I apologize for having to edit your letter down. But we are so glad to know that we have a Tamil Gentile listener. Give us a call. Give us the real deal. Our next guest is Guri Alfi, Israel's, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, other Israeli stand-up comics could sue me, Israel's leading stand-up comedian. Most recently, he is the host and the creative force behind The New Jew, Ayudia Khadash, an amazing, amazing journey of discovery in which he, Guri Alfi, travels to America and learns to love its Jewish community. Have a listen. Alfie, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Here we are, two Israelis, and we're speaking in English. I heard you give a stand-up performance in New York once, and you said something that stuck with me ever since. You said, you know, when you speak in English, everything sounds so pleasant and welcoming. As soon as you switch to Hebrew, you said, everything sounds shchuna. <laughs> everything sounds like it's just kind of like undignified. And why is that? It sounds like fighting. It sounds like we're fighting. Even when we're talking to ourselves, it sounds like we're fighting with ourselves. It's a lot of words and a lot of syllables that go, uh, you know, ha and ka and sha. It sounds violent. It sounds like the Middle East. And here we are in America, land of the free and home of the brave. I want to take you back to the first moment in which you were pitched this amazing new show that we're here to celebrate. Here's how I imagine it. I imagine, you know, your agent, because this is, Israel's a lot like Hollywood in my mind, right? Saying, <laughs> Gory, I, I have a big hit for you. It's going to be a documentary <laughs> series about American Jews. And you're saying, American Jews? No one in Israel cares about any of this. There has literally not been a single show about American Jews in 70-something years of there being an Israel and an American Jewish community. W- were you like, no, I don't want to do this. Get me like something like Fauda or Chatufim or Shtisel. Get me something cool. Did you object or did this seem like a good idea? Well, it started like that. It started like I've been going to uh, shows all around and I was going to uh, New York for another show. And, and my friend Dror said, uh, you know, I have a friend there, Moshe, he works with the, the Federation, the Jewish Federation. And I laughed for an hour. And he said, why are you laughing? I said, the Jewish Federation. Oh, my God. This is Star Wars. This is so funny. And he didn't get it. And then I met with Moshe and uh, we met over hummus avocado, which I didn't know existed. And it was terrible. And he pitched me this idea. I mean, let's do something, you know, to get the brothers and sisters from Israel to know their siblings from uh, North America. And I said, well, it sounds great because I've been here for a year and I don't get him. I don't get any of them. I mean, I've been to dinners, I've been to Shabbat dinners, and they're so different from what I know, from the Judaism that I know. And it hit me that 
that this is something that we should do. And the fact that we have seven, I don't know, something like that, seven million Jews here, and there's there's seven million Jews in the U.S., it's amazing. It's like those two poles of Judaism are happening right now, and they're not really connecting like they did back then when Israel was uh, first invented, right? (laughs) So uh, that was the first pitch uh, that Moshe gave me. When I pitched the idea for the Tagid, for Khan, the Israeli national television, I pitched it, it's going to be a comedy, okay? It's me, you know, it will be okay. It will be a comedy. We will touch some subjects, but it will be a comedy. Yeah, I will say things like like going to the uh, principal of a very good but very pricey Jewish day school and say, if my kids turn out to be Christians, do I get my $24,000 a year back? <laughs> yeah, Vinny was very upset with that saying. <laughs> he told me, this you have to take out. It's like, sure, sure, it's out, man. It's out. It's out there. <laughs> and once we got back from the first day, we did two legs of shooting. And once we got back from the first day, I said, guys, we have something deeper than that. I know it's not something that I do. I mean, deep things. But listen, there are some items here and some people that we met and they're really hurting. (laughs) And they they had this journey that they had to uh, walk through and and, uh, sorry to take this stuff from, from, uh, I don't know, Jesus, but this Via de la Rosa that they walked through we didn't have to, and we are privileged to be uh, Israelis, and we don't know how, how privileged we are. All right, we're going to get deep in a second, but first of all, look, I traveled more or less the same way, you know, from, from Israel to live here, and just like you, there were things about the American Jewish community that for many, many years, you know, made very little sense for me. I want to hear from you. So first impressions, what is it that, you know, you come here even before you start working on the show, just kind of like, you know, someone who visits here and lives here from, from time to time. What is it that you see when you look at this community here? I see a community that is, when, when I was ig- ignorant about it, right? When I was right. ignorant about it and when I was arrogant about it, uh, I saw people that they're not really Jewish by my standards, by Orthodox standards or by Israeli standards. And they, they know some prayers, but they don't really practice Judaism and they use it like a club, like a cultural club. Then they say stuff that I don't, I don't really understand. They are very posh and they're very, very wealthy. And that's it, basically. And, and I'm not part of that club. And I felt very Mizrahi, you know, very right. Safari with all those uh, Ashkenazi Jews. And I didn't feel at home when I was there in Shabbat dinner and stuff like that. And now I'm a secular Jew. I have no opinion really on the religion or on the religious part of it. But... When I was there and I didn't understand it fully and I was really arrogant about it, it looked, I don't know, superficial. It looked superficial for me. And then came the show and you really get a sort of like graduate level education in, you know, the annals of of American Jewish life. So tell us a little bit about this. What surprised you? What, what, What are some of the things that you saw right away that made you go like, oh, fuck, like this is not at all like what I imagined this to be? First of all, Anti-Semitism is, is happening. It's there and they're feeling it on the street and in their houses and in their schools. And yet they choose to be Jewish, which is amazing. In this day and age, to choose to be Jewish, to choose to be this minority. And they have to. I mean, they have to. 
They have to put their children in, in, in Jewish school and they have to uh, find their community and they have to go to a uh, synagogue and they have to uh, do bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah and find a rabbi to do it. And they have to work for it. Something that I take for granted. I live in a state where we talk Hebrew, we celebrate all the holidays and it goes by and I don't even notice it. I don't even notice it. And there you have to really reach out and find a way to be Jewish. It's, it's a part-time job. <laughs> <laughs> Besides from being a citizen, it's, it's a part-time job that you have as a family. And I think as a father, just seeing that made me think, why, why are they doing this? Why is it so important? I mean, fourth, fifth, sixth generation in, in the U.S., why bother? Why bother? And it's this narrative, this story that has been passed on from an, our ancestors to us, which is an amazing story, a unique story. And it's something to be proud about. And I never thought about it. I never thought about, am I proud being a Jew? It made me think that maybe I should learn something from these guys. Maybe they have, they have answers, but something I didn't even ask. And I kind of found out I'm pretty proud. I'm pretty proud being a Jew, being Jewish. And I know some of my ancestors had to die for it. And it means something. I started searching, why is it so meaningful? And, and this is, you know, it's a great deal that I learned from this show. And it's a great deal that I, I learned from those people. This is so beautifully put. I feel exactly the same way. Isn't it weird that both you and I people with deep roots in Israel had to travel, you know, 3,000 miles and, and come here and really be in this community to discover that we're Jews. We had to leave the Jewish state to learn that we actually care about being Jewish. Yes, but listen, we are on, on survival mode in Israel. So we have current issues to handle. So we, so we I can't hear. be bothered with deep thoughts. <laughs> and this is a deep thought. And here, you know, we are bickering over stuff. Religion had become politics and it become something that we argue about and we reject it and we're not fond of it. And every single part of it makes us scratch and itch because there are like two groups and two parties at each other's necks. And when you go out of the story and you, and you go to another country and you understand everything and you, under, and you see the big picture, when you see the big picture, you understand everything about being Jewish and, and about this narrative and about the survival of this community through all those years and such bright ideas that they brought to the world. And you can understand it only by perspective. Do people in Israel get this? I mean, how was the show received? As I guess is a question I'm asking. Do they watch you go through this journey, meet all these amazing people? We'll talk about them in a sec and say to themselves, fuck, we had no idea. This was going, <laughs> we're, we're going to pay serious attention to these people now. Yeah. Or do they think like, haha, funny, look, look at these, uh, you know, poor saps across the sea. Now we don't have to think about them again for another 75 years. Yeah. I, have been, I went to a club, to a stand-up club and this stand-up comedian came to me and said, Listen, I, I saw the show and I realized I don't know the blessings. <laughs> I said, what? He said, like, I was, I, I was talking trash about the show and I was making fun of the people that you are meeting. 
And then I realized I don't know the blessings and my father knows them and my grandfather knows them and I don't know it. I don't even know it. I'm so ignorant. So I wanted to open a book, a sedum or something. I don't have it. <laughs> I'm in, a, in an apartment in Tel Aviv and I don't have one of those. So he went out, he bought one, he learned the blessings, he did a kiddush and he felt great. And <laughs> his wife went crazy, right? And said, are you? Are you Chazar Batshuva? You're not doing it. I said, I said, no, no, but let's just do this. I mean, we, why? Why don't we do it? I mean, it's, it's part of us. It's part of our being. We have children. And it was moving for me just hearing this guy. And it's one of a thousand people that, that called up or text or commented somewhere about this show, about what it done for them, because it got them to realize their ignorance, their arrogance, and to finally face the fact that we don't know shit about our culture. And we're passing this ignorance to our children, uh, which will basically will forget their Judaism in a generation or two. And it will be sad, it'll be very sad for this narrative to, to slip away from history. It will be very sad that we, we are the ones that will do that. When you visited here, you really, I mean, knowing this community a little bit, a little bit I, I really sort of, you know, watched the show and said, he got everyone. He got all the greats, all, all the best of the best this community has to offer. This is all Moshe. This is all Moshe Samuels. Everything is Moshe. Moshe rocked it. Finding the, the right people and telling the whole story and not, you know, not pushing the reformed then and not pushing the orthodox and not pushing this and not pushing that. And everybody got their share and everybody said, it was fair. Who do you still think about? Well, it's, it's Rabbi Jamie, I think, which really changed something in my perspective. I did my, a second bar mitzvah with her. Rabbi Jamie is the is an adventure rabbi. <laughs> Look it up. Adventure rabbi. She takes like bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah, girls and boys, and she takes them on a trip in Boulder, Colorado, or anywhere else. And she practices and she teaches the Jewish culture through our legs and through our hands and through our breath like we are going and uh, we are doing this journey together and we're hiking and she opens up this Torah at the top of a mountain and you can't deny the Shechina right there, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't deny it. It's right there. The presence of God, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. It's there and, and it's really moving and it's really and, and it's fun it's really fun and and it got me connected on this level that you know i'm an entertainer i i really like when people are laughing and having fun and i like silly to say it but pushing my agenda through comedy okay it's not really complicated right but at that moment i wasn't even into comedy or the how to deliver this or or how i will edit this i was just there in this moment and uh, it really moved and changed me. And I guess it, it stayed with me. It stayed with me. Of course, Angela Buchdel, uh, Rabbi Angela Buchdel from New York, uh, stayed with me too. There, I, I felt really ashamed, actually, for how we as a country offended her and how we keep on offending people that are so connected to Israel and they love us so much. And we turn a cold shoulder to them and I really don't know why. It's, it's so unfair. 
So let me ask you one last question, precisely on, on this note. Suppose you got a call from uh, newly elected President Buzi Herzog saying, okay, man, I watched the show. This is great. Here's the deal. We got a few billion shekels lying around. Uh, we want to appoint you as, as someone who really kind of gets it as the new head of, I don't know, Israel diaspora, Israel-American Jewry relations. What are some things that you think we need to do? What are some good ideas that or observations that came out of this journey of yours? First of all, I will take the money and run. <laughs> I, I've been waiting for this to happen, uh, especially with Bougie. And I think the only way to teach people how to, uh, how to endorse back this community, this, the, our siblings from afar, that first, you know, in 48, when this country was really just in, in, in the making, we couldn't get anywhere without our, our friends from the diaspora. And we couldn't get anywhere without their money or their trust or their beliefs or their courage to stand up against the world. And now we are kind of, we're very spoiled, I guess. And I'm saying this word over and over again because I don't have any vocabulary, as you can uh, tell. But we're very <laughs> arrogant and we don't really understand that we're losing touch with our deepest connection. And it's not only about agendas and interests, okay? It's not only for our interest. It's for becoming this Amichad. Becoming this Amichad will mean a lot of power and a lot of self-esteem. I mean, as a, as, as a people, it will rise our self-esteem to a place where we can no longer be, be feeling like a minority anywhere. And to be this Amichad, we need to talk. We need this dialogue to be open. We need to meet people from our ages. I mean, I met people who are having a family or uh, the 40 years old. And I think that 18-year-olds should meet 18-year-olds. This is the way to connect and this is the way to understand how other people are living in other countries, practicing their Judaism, proud being a Jew, and proud of you, Israel. I mean, we are their crown. We are their crown jewel. And, and we take it for granted. We take it for granted. And this, we talked about it with Rabbi Jamie about the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, which was two centers. There was Babylon and there was Eretz Israel. And Eretz Israel and Babylon grew apart, grew apart. And most of, of the right ideas of Judaism were in Babylon. So I think we are on a survival mode in Israel and we're not understanding the big picture and we're not understanding that people like us live there, proud being a Jew, proud of Israel, maybe have thoughts about how it's handled, right? And maybe they are judging us uh, a few times, but it's okay because we are Amichad and we should be Amichad. And that has to change right now because we're growing apart for a long time right now. And I hope this show which did, I think, did do something here. I think it's the start of a, of a beautiful new friendship with our family. Guialfi, you are the greatest. We are so grateful to you for being our guest. And now we're going to honor you and this amazing show by, by playing a little clip. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you very much. Ha, <laughs> ha,
the American Jewish Woody Allen. It's always, you know, this is crazy. It's like, you know, we all talk like this. And since the COVID happened, I have to stop touching my nose and my mouth because I worry about infecting my wife slash daughter. <laughs> That's like the quintessential Jew, right? Yes. I literally didn't realize till, I don't know, a decade ago that the original Jews, like from the Bible, were all like your lineage from Iraq. When I thought of, you know, Sephardic Jews, I thought they were like the minority of Jews and they weren't the real, the, the real Jews were the Jews of the Holocaust and, and these Eastern European Jews. Turns out fake Jews, they're totally fake. They're the fake Jews, total fake Jews. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> what? What is this? I mean, are you born in LA? I am born in Los Angeles. So, uh, the Israeli music, how is it a part of your life? First, let me just say, if I may. Sure. That I like your comedy. Oh, thank you. Yeah. What? You know about me? I like your joke that you're the number two comedian in Israel. <laughs> it's not a joke. Oh, it's not a joke? No, no, no. no, I love it. I mean, you've been to the Laugh Factory here. This is not your first time in LA. No, I love the Laugh Factory. I love everybody here. Yeah. Do you know the comedian, Tehran? I Thank do know Tehran. I saw him play the other day. It's a so wonderful funny. Fair, yeah. I was a science experiment. Let me explain. Yes. On my father's side, my father is Iranian. Yes. Okay, from We're Iran. from in Iran. From Tehran. From That's Tehran. why he named me Tehran. Yes. On my mother's side, she's black, okay? But it doesn't stop there. They were like Iranian and black, and then they named their kid Tehran, like life was easy enough being Iranian and black. Tehran, go. They, they met here in... They met in the United States. Yes. On my mother's side, who's black, my grandfather, black American, my grandmother, Egyptian Jew. So the ones who look like they weren't smart enough to leave slavery, like they just stayed, like, <laughs> leave. Moses led you out of there. Why did you go back? <laughs> so that's where it comes from. Funny guy. Yeah. He prepared me uh, to meet you. Tehran? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to meet with a Persian family, Persian Jewish family. Persian Jew would be the way we title it. Mm -hmm. It sounds better. That's why Persians like the word Persian, because it sounds better. Sounds like, oh, look, the rug, it's expensive. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, Iranian, like on the news? Ugh, ugh. Right? But Persian, oh, yeah. Exotic. Exactly, exactly. So what that. is your background? Let, let me understand. Right. So I was born in Los Angeles. My parents are both Iranian. My father is a cardiologist from Tehran. And my mother was actually born and raised in Germany, in Hamburg, Germany. Really? Yeah, what, what keeps us... Jewish is very much our connection to Israel. I grew up in a Jewish elementary school, Sinai Akiva, where we're constantly told about the importance of Israel. But instead of doing Aliyah to Israel, they came here to LA. They were Early educated 80s. and bought a house in Beverly Hills. A very, uh, it's a status. Persian people like the flair. That's what I like about us. Uh, They're very much like Israelis. Yes, they like the flair. That's Middle Eastern culture, I guess, likes to live out loud. Oh my God, you're Jewish? Olam Echad, Hashem Echad, Ha'am Echad. This is unity. Olam Echad, Hashem Echad, Ha'am Echad. This is unity. I started doing hip-hop in Yeshiva. Hip-hop was the way that I used to learn Gemara better. You know, we would just come up with beats and rhymes. And we'd go back and forth over, um, the, over the Gemara. The melody of Yadid Nefesh that they 
went to the. Actually, so they did the. That's the Ashkenazi. That's the Ashkenazi rhyme to it. Yeah. So I felt this kind of sacred envy in a way. I was like, oh, I really am enjoying this melody. I'll stick around and see what else happens. So I stayed for dinner. I asked questions, and everyone was really welcoming and lovely. So look, guys, Liel here. I know this episode has been mostly about kind of big, important Israel-related questions and American Jews and whatnot, but I could not let this week, these Olympic Games, go without expressing once again and with feeling my love for the greatest baseball outfit of all time in the history of mankind, Team Israel. And fresh back from Tokyo, it is my pleasure to welcome here for a debriefing, a conversation, and a show of admiration, Yoni Rosenblatt, who is the team's sports physical therapist. Yoni, hi. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. It's our pleasure. And again, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with this miraculous outfit, Team Israel, despite being from a country where I grew up that doesn't actually even have many or maybe even any baseball stadiums, made it as one of the six finalists to play in the Olympic Games and gave fans all over the world, but I would like to thank myself in particular, because it's all about me, tremendous joy. So Yoni, first of all, how does it feel to be on the other side of this? It was amazing to be a piece of it. There are absolutely baseball fields in Israel, and they're working on a giant project in Beit Shemesh. That was actually a big focal point of both the World Baseball Classic in 2017 and also this Olympic run. So it's coming, and baseball is definitely growing in your homeland. But to be on the flip side of the Olympics is really, I'd say, awe-inspiring to look back at what just transpired. Take us to the very beginning of the journey. Tell us how you got involved with the team and tell us about the moment where you realized, you know, oh, wow, we're, we're going to Tokyo. We're going to play in the Olympics. I'm lucky enough to be from another holy city of, of Baltimore, Maryland. And I got introduced to the general manager of the original baseball outfit for Team Israel, which was prepped for the World Baseball Classic in 2017. So I got invited to be a piece of that medical staff, luckily. And that probably came out both from Baltimore roots, obviously, my love for Israel. I work with a, a number of elite level professional athletes in and around this country. And so it seemed like a logical fit. You know, forgive my ignorance, but when I think about Team Israel and the Olympics, and believe me, I've been thinking a lot about Team Israel and the Olympics. I'm imagining, you know, here are you guys and next door is, you know, Team USA of like all the greatest players. And they have, you know, like fancy machinery and the hordes of doctors and like the best of everything. And I'm imagining you guys, you know, with all the talent and all the goodwill and like three bags of Bamba, like sitting there being like, yeah, we can do this. Am I totally wrong? I wish you were more wrong. There's definitely, listen, there's definitely some of that. A large percentage of this squad and, and same thing with previous squads have professional baseball experience. So they've all kind of seen that. I was lucky enough that Israel baseball also sought the need to say, hey, we're going to compete with the Americans, with the Dominicans, with Mexico. What is it that they have that we can also offer? And PT is one of those necessary things. So I think it brought up some of that level of competition. But the way these guys prepared was like the big leagues. This is what we do. This is what we do. And we take it really seriously. And so we certainly felt comfortable getting on a playing field against these guys. While on the uh, subject of things I'm probably fantasizing about and getting completely wrong, I also imagine that the PT guy and the team is 
not just the sort of sports physician type person, but also maybe the team shrink, you know, the guy who, while he does the exercises, hears everyone's real frustrations and hopes and, you know, gets gets the real lowdown. Is, is that true? That's definitely true in this instance. I come from a unique background in the fact that I have a lot of family living in Israel. I spend time there going to school. I'm one of two dudes kind of in the organization that's wearing a yarmulke. So I kind of feel those questions as well. But also on the sports medicine side, it's really, it's fascinating, maybe only to me, but it's, it's fascinating that rare is it that the level of sports medicine care is as high as the level of athletics. So some of these guys are coming out of the big leagues and they've never had good sports medicine care. So that certainly builds a bond. And then I'm spending hours with these guys. So absolutely, I become the shrink, for lack of a better word. This unbelievable story unfolded with a guy named John Moscott, who was our star pitcher and got the start in game one. This is a guy who clawed his way back from, I mean, he was working a desk job to pitching the opening game in the Olympics and overcoming a recent elbow surgery and really getting his stuff back. So he pitched for the Reds four years ago and had been injured ever since and then clawed his way all the way back to be on the mound. So you talk about like this roller coaster, 10 pitches in against. Korea, John injures his elbow severely, and and that changed the trajectory of probably his quest to get back into baseball, but definitely for Team Israel moving through the Olympic pool. And so when he steps off the mound, he's in pain and, and also broken, being not just the PT expert and shrink, but also apparently the rabbi of the team. Do you, <laughs> no, do you offer like... Yeah. Do you offer some, you know, wisdom from Rabbi Akiva or some Gemara to to sort of lighten the, the load? I gotta say that when Moscot came off that mound, I don't think he wanted to hear about Rabbi Akiva. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, listen, I'm, I'm there to, to help him with whatever he needs. And that's one of the things I appreciated about this squad is that it was a, a bunch of people coming together, really volunteering to say, how can I help? How can I be a piece of, of really showing the world that Jews can play ball? And I think they certainly did that. You're talking about a team that was three outs away, despite what I just described in the injury department, three outs away from being in a medal game on a world stage. So it was really a, a collective effort. And I think everyone on that squad valued the opportunity to put a, you know, a Jewish star proudly on their jersey and on their arm and represent the Jewish people really beautifully. And they did that as we moved through the village and as we interacted with other teams and to see those interactions and to see other countries like Iran and Qatar interacting with Israeli players was, was really eye-opening and fascinating. I have no idea if that's what you asked me, but it was definitely a good experience to be there for that. What were, you know, one or two or three of, of the sort of most, oh, wow moments in which you kind of, you know, walk around the Olympic Village and all of a sudden have these experiences and realize, well, look at where we are right now. Was there a, a moment like this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd say right before the first Shabbat Friday night, I stop and I was having a conversation with Novak Djokovic, tennis player. <laughs> and, and like, by the way, that happened routinely throughout these two to three weeks. I, I found myself like in a lunch line with Pal Gasol, with Yao Ming, like sharing dinner with a guy like Djokovic, just because that's what living in the village was like. Is there good kosher food in the village? Do they supply that? Listen, there's kosher food. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's not get ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> yeah, let's not get crazy. I was I was thrilled that they even had that. I mean, you kind of sign up for it, you show up, and they they were so careful. Like they didn't want to touch the microwave that I was gonna put my airline meal in because someone told them like that would make the whole thing uh, you know, not kosher. So they were super hospitable. 
I've had better food, but I was thrilled that it, there was kosher food. So one of those moments, I'm talking to Djokovic, and he concludes the conversation with, okay, Shabbat Shalom. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, did that just happen? Oh so God. when I saw him, like, two days later, I'm like, Joker, as I refer to him. Like, what was with the, where did you learn that? Like, where did you learn that Shabbat thing or whatever you said to me? And he said, oh, my, my former agent was Israeli. I was about to say, oh, yeah, the guy who handles my money. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so that's funny that you say that because I said, who gets rid of a Jewish agent? Like, that's what you want. He's like, you probably don't want to know the answer to that. I'm like, okay, uh, that's fine. Incredible. So, Yoni, you, you've sort of alluded to this throughout our conversation, but, but I want to ask you, you know, a question I think gets to, to, to the heart of the matter, to the heart of, of why I and so many others love this team so much. You yourself, as well as many other players on the team, are American-born, correct? Sure. Yep. And so I think there, there are kind of two ways, if you think about Team Israel, two ways to think about this. There's one way, which you know, several commentators in Israel have, I would say, sort of cynically expressed of, hey, you know, this is not really an Israeli team. It's just a bunch of Americans who made some maneuvers so they could play in the Olympics. The other way, uh, which is very much the way I see it, is like, here's a team of American Israelis who are really serving as a sort of like living bridge between these two communities, which are also the two largest kind of, you know, nodes of Jewish life in the world today. I'm curious, first of all, how you see things. And second of all, if, if this is a subject of discussion among the guys, among the players. I mean, the, the way I see that, because I've certainly heard that, I wouldn't even say whispers, I'd say loud and clear, is this is a unbelievable opportunity for on the individual level for these lifelong ball players to connect with their Jewish heritage and roots, which at very, very frequently is something that you run from in a professional locker room, that you, that you don't scream from the mountaintops that, hey, I'm a Jew and I'm playing ball. But now it's becoming, and it has become, a source of pride to the individual. So that's only in the, you, you look at the, the positives on the individual side. I saw a love of the country a love of the state when we went over there. We went over there in January before what was supposed to be 2020 Olympics. And to see people connect and to see professional baseball players connect with Israeli youth and spread the game and spread the love and to say, you can do whatever you want as a Jew in this world. And it's really up to you. And if you want to be a professional athlete, you can do that as a Jew. So that's one positive. That's where I see the individuals from my standpoint growing and gaining from a more macroscopic point of view, what an unbelievable name we're able to give this country that doesn't always get the brightest light shined on it, that doesn't get these positive accolades and media coverage. What positive stories that we've been able to weave as an Israeli national baseball team. I don't think it matters where you're from. I think it matters the way it can be portrayed to the general public, and it is overwhelmingly positive. And so that, that's more 10,000-foot view of the way I see it, but I'm just the physical therapist. Is it something that's spoken about to your second question? Yeah, w without question. I mean, we, we heard it from Israeli media when we were there. We heard it in 2017 when people called us uh, the American JV team, stuff like that. <laughs> we've heard it all, and we've talked about it all, and I, I've seen this team and these players grow together because of their shared Jewish heritage and backgrounds. And I've seen them sh just really give Israel an outstanding name on the international stage. And um, it it's a shame that anyone would look down upon that. And on my end, I have seen the real sense of palpable joy 
that my seven-year-old boy has anytime he puts on his Team Israel yarmulke yeah. uh, and feels, you know, sort of triply proud for all the right reasons. And this is why I don't think it's a cliche at all to say that even though there's there's no hardware, there are no medals, I really can be more proud of this team. And um, thank you so much for for doing your part. Absolutely. That I mean, I was I was lucky to be a part. I was lucky to experience all those things in the village and and see unbelievable athletes perform at their highest levels and. That's exactly what it's about. That seven-year-old smiling, being comfortable and happy and proud that he's a Jew. Inshallah. Yoni Rosenblatt, thank you so much. <laughs> Serious pleasure. Thanks, guys. Mazel tops. Leo, do you have a mazel tov? I have a refuah shlema, a speedy recovery. To my heroes, Nathan and Avital Sharansky, who are recovering from COVID-19. May they recover quickly, although I will note that having spent nine and a half years as a Soviet refusenik in the Gulag, few people are better trained for quarantining than Nathan Sharansky. <laughs> Basically tell this guy like two weeks and you're not allowed to leave the house. He's like, two weeks? He's like, I got this. I got what are you this. talking about? <laughs> or as we call it back in the Gulag, Wednesday. Right. And for me too, Rafua Shlema, Natan, and Avital Sharensky. I want to give a mazel tov to our longtime listener and collaborator, Shay Katiri. He has a new Substack newsletter, The Russia Iran File, it's called. And uh, you can subscribe. Go find it. He'll give you some free content and then maybe he'll charge you for some. But right now it's free and we wish him all the best. A mazel tov from our uh, producer, Sarah Fredman Ader, to her brother Alicia and his family. They made Aliyah last week. They are on the flip side in Israel, hopefully spreading the unorthodox gospel. And finally, we got this letter, and the Mazel Tov will be completely understandable, will be implicit. Hi, all. A big congrats to Stephanie. I hope she's not reading this email. Trust us, we are protecting her from the email. Second, I wanted to write to say that my son, Noah, and I became Jews on Tuesday. I'd been working on conversion for two years. Discovering unorthodox last summer was a major and defining part of this journey. Indeed, you all came up a few times in my conversion essays. Thank you. Just thank you. All the best, Amanda, a.k.a. Miriam Bat Avraham Vasara. Amanda and Noah and your whole mishpucha and everyone who's happy for you and everyone on the journey with you, we give you the biggest of unorthodox mazel We tovs. love you and welcome home. And finally, finally, a mazel tov to listener Aviv Matskin for a very eloquent voicemail that got cut off at the end. So I have no idea what the, the payoff on your voicemail was, but, you know, it, it had me excited. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sar Fredman Ader, associate producer Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger, theme music by Golem, mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Our ambassador to Israel is Cindy Shore. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Devorah Marcus of Temple Emmanuel in San Diego, California, or as Sid Oppenheimer calls it, the Garden of Eden. We come to you from the scattered home studios of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Mm-hmm.